1: Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.
2: Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC experience hilarious talks comedy specials and feel-good films with your fan favorite comedians like hannah einbinder judd apatow neil patrick harris take notaro and more you have to be there get your tickets now at tribecafilm.com
3: Welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am not now, nor have I ever been Ezra Klein, but don't worry, he's right around the corner. My name's Sean Ramos I host Vox's daily news podcast, Today Explained, and this is a big podcast week here at Vox. We're celebrating Today Explained's first anniversary, some 250 episodes later. Happy birthday to us. Subscribe if you haven't. And more celebration is in order because in a studio right across the hall from where I'm sitting, one Ezra Klein has been making this show for three whole years. To mark the occasion, we're running Ezra's very first episode. It's a conversation with Rachel Maddow. She tells Ezra about her early years as an activist, her unconventional path to journalism, and how she prepares for her show night after night. I'm going to be listening extra carefully to that last part. But before any of that, of course, Ezra and Rachel started with their shared love of dogs. My
1: experience of having a dog has primarily been that a lot of people have a lot of advice and nobody knows where any of it comes from. Yes. There's the, you've got to be the alpha in the house, school of thought. Then there's the, that is ridiculous. Dogs do not think you're a dog. They are dumb, <laughs> but they are not that dumb. And and just like my my dogs have a lot of stranger danger. They're two little terriers. They're very, very sweet to us and they want the rest of the world to be killed and to die. Yeah. And trying to train them out of that has been... A fun project in which everybody wants us to do the opposite thing. (laughs) They're like, bring the dogs down to meet people, which freaks them out to high heaven. And then it's like, no, have people come in. And then they think somebody's invading the home. And there just does not appear to be very valid answers. Do they work
0: as a team? Are they a hunting, killing stranger team?
1: Yes, but the opposite of all those adjectives. They are a running, cowering, fear-barking team.
0: Oh, so they want death, but they don't want to kill. They want the strangers to die because they've set up an alarm and right. somebody else to yeah, come. Yeah, I would in, say ideally
1: we would do the—me and my wife would do the actual <laughs> execution of strangers. They would let us know somebody is coming, and we would arm the weaponry and, and sort I of press it. the fire. Are
0: they the same age?
1: They are. They're littermates. Ah, oh, really? They're rescues. They were found together. They look the same. Mm-hmm. They appear to be the same age. So we think they are.
0: Are they both boys or boy and girl? Both girls. I'm both girls. Yeah. See, Susan really thinks that we're better with boy dogs, which I, I don't like. I don't know. We've only <laughs> ever had boy dogs, but she's really convinced that we shouldn't have a girl dog. We should only have boy dogs. It's very important, and it's such an article of faith with her about who we are as people <laughs> and what our relationship is as pet owners with our pet. We talk about everything. Like we never talk about that. We just treat that as it's just received gospel.
1: Did, did you have dogs growing up, or no. is this uh, no. uh, mm-hmm. an adult?
0: Well, my mom grew up in Newfoundland on a dirt farm really in the middle of nowhere with absolutely no money in subsistence farming. And so they had a lot of animals around, but animals were always around to either be eaten or to work. Right. And so the idea that you would bring a dog <laughs> into the home, what are you, a savage? <laughs> dogs go on hunts, dogs corral sheep, dogs live in the barn, they're animals. So my mom has a real old school farmer's approach to animals that is not at all pet related. My brother and I, I had an older brother, and he and I both wanted a dog badly enough as little kids that we did have like 14 hours with a golden retriever, but... (laughs) It was like, we got the Golden Retriever, my brother and I were super excited for half an hour, right? but we were like three and seven, and eh. and then we lost interest, and then it became my mom's responsibility, and then yes. the Golden Retriever ate her plants, and then it was straight home.
1: There's something I learned about, you that I didn't know, researching, to talk to you today, you're from California, you're from Castro Valley. I am. I did not know that. It's it, not
0: an interesting thing about me. I it should be written down be, anywhere.
1: Because I always think of you as a Massachusetts person.
0: Oh, right, yeah.
1: Because I guess that's where you more that's or less where, live now.
0: Yeah, and that's and, where I go home on the weekends. Right,
1: and so... It seems like a part of your personality to me and I'm not sure why. It was one of these things that when I found that I was surprised at to think, why am I surprised by that at all? I'm also from California, people can be from California. Yeah. But it, it seemed interesting to me. <laughs> well it's funny too, because you tell people what part of California are you from? I'm from Urban. So Southern California, so Orange County. Now what you... is called the O. C. What ah. was not called the OC when I was growing up? There, that was something the show invented. Nobody called the OC. So that's the
0: nineties, or that's the two thousandsies when it starts getting I called the OC. I
1: think it's the early two thousands. I would not. Do you
0: ever use it? Do you the ever OC? say I'm from the OC, like without being ironic?
1: <laughs> no, because I say I'm from Irvine. Right. Orange County is big. Yeah. So the OC is not about quote unquote the OC. It's about Newport Beach. It's about a very uh, specific place in Orange County. Which is a very
0: rich part. Very, yeah. very,
1: very rich. But not far from there, you have Santa Ana, which is completely demographically different, right? Heavily Hispanic, heavily immigrant, much poorer. Not far from there, you have Laguna Beach, which is also rich but a very different kind of rich and sort of a hippie beach town where you can go get tacos and they'll always be filled with tempeh. I mean, it, <laughs> there's a lot of different parts to the OC. And when you're growing, when you're growing up, oh, my God, I just said it non-ironically. <laughs> you, you trap me. <laughs> when you're growing up in it, it doesn't those things don't feel connected. These are just cities, and they're near each other, but the fact that you're part of the same county is not a salient. Fact I was just going to ask, so you existence. weren't
0: you didn't grow up thinking I'm an orange county person. I did not know. Yeah.
1: It would have never occurred to me that that is an identity anyone would have because it it isn't an identity that would mean a lot.
0: See, as a person who grew up in Northern California and for a while was very interested and invested in California politics, I thought of Orange County as a very specific thing where, like, the people would glow a different color because (laughs) Orange County was, like, the heart of all that is Republican in California politics. and. California Republicanism has been a really weird thing over the course of our mm-hmm. lifetimes. You know, it's just an, it's an unusual partisan thing <laughs> in a blue state, but to have a really robust heart of it in a place that is big and has a lot of money and is diverse and all those things. Part of how I ended up in Massachusetts relates to Orange County.
1: <laughs> You're welcome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> My dad's best friend from the Air Force is a lawyer who lives and works in Orange County and is a Republican, and he's a lovely guy. And when I finished... Well, I didn't finish my dissertation. When I finished the time living in England, (laughs) when I was supposed to be writing my dissertation, and I was out of money and out of a visa, and it was time to move back to the United States and finish my dissertation, I wanted to live someplace that I would be really unhappy It was like creating a little shoot for myself. I wanted to be super unhappy so I would be undistracted. So the only way to dig myself out of my misery would be to finish that freaking dissertation so I could leave this terrible place that I had planted myself and move on in my life. Otherwise, I knew it would take me forever and I'd never get it
4: done.
0: (laughs) So I was like, where can I live for free because I have no money and I don't want to get another job because I want to finish my dissertation? And my two options were move in with... My dad's best friend from the Air Force, who's a lawyer in Orange County, <laughs> who offered me literally space in a broom closet at the office of his law firm. And I was like, well, that would be very unhappy making. That works. Or I could live with friends who I had known from high school who had moved to Western Massachusetts to live in rural New England to, like, run a and b And I was like, well, that sounds absolutely terrible. I don't like New England. I don't like the country. Winter is starting. They're raising dogs. I don't like dogs. That sounds pretty miserable, too. And I ended up picking the latter. But then I decided I like New England and the country and dogs, <laughs> and I've lived there
1: forever. So <laughs> Is this a productivity tactic you yes. had tried before? Because you were a high-performing person. You'd have been a Rhodes Scholar. Did you traditionally put yourself in torturous positions that would force you to finish big projects and get things done? Was that was that your getting things done strategy?
0: It still, it is in ways large and small. That was a big life decision mm-hmm. coming back from Oxford and how to do the dissertation. But it's also like, I don't let myself pee until I've edited the (laughs) B-block. And maybe it's gonna take three hours to edit the B-block. I'm just gonna suffer through it. (laughs) I do, I still do that. I don't even really consciously do it, it's just the way that I'm wired. I am motivated by fear of failure, and I know that, and so I constantly create situations, large and small, in which failure is a real possibility. Huh. In order to get stuff done. What was the dissertation on?
1: Oh boy. Yeah.
0: Need an insomnia cure? I can lend it to you. <laughs> it was called HIV/AIDS and healthcare reform in British and American prisons.
1: I don't know. That actually sounds interesting. <laughs> oh, Ezra.
0: Oh. <laughs> thank you.
1: This goes back, right? You were an HIV/AIDS activist. Mm-hmm. You'd said you were involved in California politics. Is that the kind of California politics you were involved in? Is that yes. what is the first rally you went to? One of the first
0: political things that I remember, which was not something that I was involved in, but some, uh, meaning I wasn't an activist in the cause, but I was there that day, was when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. Mm-hmm. It's sort of lost to history. We actually found some of the old footage of this for the show not that long ago. He came and did a tour of a few places in the United States, and one of the places that he came to, I believe, was the Oakland Coliseum in, in the Bay Area. Okay. At least that's where, in my mind, I remember it. And I remembered going, knowing that this was a historic moment, and thinking, like, oh, this is the Bay Area is full of people who are <laughs> very engaged in this politics. So I remember sort of seeing that and witnessing that. And growing up in the Bay Area, you can't help but have some consciousness of particularly lefty and radical political movements. Right. But for me, it was my first... Proto-activism was as a student, a high school student, we had an active chapter of the Ku Klux Klan in my town. Hmm. Really? Yeah, which was a weird thing. They used to march in the rodeo parade that we had every year. what year year is this? Uh, I graduated from high school in 1990, so it would have been the 80s. Okay. The town that I grew up in, it's interesting. It's an unincorporated area in Alameda County. It's called Castro Valley. And... There was a lot of racial animosity. We were right next to a town called San Leandro, which kind of mm-hmm. famously had um, race riots and stuff Into the pretty recently. <laughs> and then the Klan thing was happening, and then we had a group called White Aryan Resistance. I don't know if you know any of the skinhead politics stuff from the 80s. They came down and started recruiting on my high school campus.
1: No kidding. So they were like in the quad or something yes. with flyers and literally baked goods or whatever.
0: <laughs> skinhead cookies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> turns out they're only sugar cookies, <laughs> no sprinkles. And there were like white power skinhead concerts and stuff around. And so me and my friends would try to to annoy them. Like we right. put up anti-racist skinhead flyers around town and stuff. We went to, at one point went to. Oakland to a meeting of the anti-racist skins, the sort of sharp skins, and asked them to go to one of the white power concerts where the skinheads from our town were going to please beat up the racist skinheads because we were just high school kids and we were afraid of them. But please, would you guys beat them up? And in fact, there was a a, there was
1: a fissure in the skinhead movement is and you you have the kind of like straight edge, non-racist skinheads who feel that the the neo-Nazi skinheads are giving them a, a terrible name. Yeah. That's my sort of like vague gloss from my recollection of this part of Southern California politics. Yeah. And that's <laughs> like sort of— it's, that's I knew a bunch of these straight-edge Or kids there's,
0: and... a, there's a big racist skinhead movement, and then there's a bunch of people who think, actually, there's a lot of things about the skinhead movement that we like. It doesn't have to be racist, does <laughs> right, it? yeah. Let's be an anti-racist part of the movement whose mission will be to beat up the racists. Right. Sort of a self—it's like a dog chasing his tail. <laughs> and you can't really have one without the other. But so I did that kind of thing, and then I came out when I was I came out to myself when I was sixteen. I came out when I was sort of publicly when I was seventeen, and even before I came out to anybody else, I started working at an AIDS hospice in Oakland, just a place where people went to get services and ultimately to die. And I did that as a teenager before I went to college. And then when I went to college, I did student activism around AIDS and started participating in like ACT UP demonstrations and stuff in San Francisco. And then I got out of college early and moved to San Francisco mostly because I wanted to do more, act up. And then I did that until I went to grad school.
1: Tell me about getting out of college early. Did you graduate and leave, or did you just sort of say, I'm done with this and and walk
0: out? I graduated and left. I just got out after three years and a bit.
1: I did that too, actually. Yeah, like I never walked or anything. I left after three years and kind of got all my credits done and sort of got the signed, the thing that said I had graduated. Mm -hmm. But. But and did I'd, you actually
0: leave campus or did you? Yeah, I yeah. moved
1: to D.C. I had wanted to go do political writing. I'd been blogging for a while at that point. And, and it felt weird at that point to be like, on the one hand, writing for a lot of people, and on the other hand, like doing these papers for like one person. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll just keep writing for a lot of people. Right.
0: <laughs> Especially if you can be done and stop paying tuition. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Which is a, I, yeah, a did nice you, thing. Did you have a lot of student debt? I didn't know. So I went to University of California mm-hmm. and had in-state tuition. And you know, my father is a professor at UC. Ah. So he's a mathematician at UCI. Mm-hmm. And so I was lucky to, to not have much student debt. But if I had done the grad school route, that could have changed things. One reason I was excited to try moving to Washington, D.C. and actually having a job was it meant I wouldn't have to go. To law school or something and possibly rack up a ton of expense either on me or, you know, my family would bear it just because it would make everybody feel safer somehow. Mm -hmm. It's always seemed very weird to me that people consider racking up that much debt before they've even seen what would happen if they tried not racking it up to be the safe option.
0: There is something about the artificial linkage of education to age that makes that true, that you think, oh, it's safe to pursue as much educational attainment as I can, even if it's financially reckless, because this is the only time in my life in which I am allowed to achieve educational things. Mm -hmm. I guess it's that way by necessity, because once you start working, it's hard to stop out and do education instead. But if that was decoupled a little bit, I think that might change some of the risk people are willing to take on. You do feel like, oh, time's ticking. Better get my degrees.
1: Well, I also think that is completely true, the linkage of age and education for a certain cohort who's sort of racking up degrees and racking up a kind of achievement. Yeah. Students in community colleges, right? And a lot of different kinds of like professional degrees in night schools are way, way older. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a fascinating thing about particularly the policy conversation, because so many people, that conversation is so dominated by people who had this kind of age-driven, more linear educational experience yep. that you know you'll read the New York Times magazine and you think all colleges were Ivy League mm-hmm. schools, right? As opposed to like most people going to community colleges, a lot of them doing it part time. They do it when they're older. It has a very, the way you get credits is very different, so it can work with work. Yep. And anyway, I agree with what you're saying. I just think it's a fascinating thing that we have made that age education linkage a very elite thing. Yes. And it's actually not good even for elites. Yeah. And then there are all kinds of other educational ways of organizing sort of life cycle education that are out there that just sort of seem to get dropped a lot of the time from the conversation.
0: I think part of the problem with that is that so much of the non-elite model education, which is, you know, from high school into residential college environment right. with the option of graduate school thereafter immediately <laughs> with, no work op- with no work experience. New ways of thinking about that has been really dominated by the idea of online education and online degrees. And the online education world has so many freaking grifters in it and is so freaking corrupt and in many ways evil. When you think about, like, the ways they've taken over the post-9-11 GI Bill, the way they just absolutely hijacked that. Yeah. So much online education is a scam that it is it has made real reform and real coherent evolution of higher education feel like
1: a minefield. The other thing that I think is really poisonous in the online education conversation, right, the hype about it is it, it is a lot of people who are very self-directed learners who love learning things on computer screens in particular mm-hmm. projecting what they need to succeed on to other people. And so you look at these online education courses and the dropout rates are just incredible. This idea that all these people are going to go and watch these kind of long courses and they will do it without any support and without sections, without any kind of social community that helps them stay engaged. It's just a very specific kind of person who benefits from that. Yes. And so, I'm always amazed by people's learning styles are so different, but certain learning styles cluster in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Silicon Valley, and you know, New York, certain places where this conversation is funded from, decided in policymaking, or created as a technological platform. Right. And I think there's just a really dangerous level of projection in it.
0: Well, it, yeah. What people need is more options. And to the extent that the options evolve, are funded, and are described by, right. in terms of people writing about these things, by people who all have similar and niche preferences, is, it's frustrating. You know, it's interesting though, like when I made my decision about getting out of college early and indeed going to grad school, it was 100% money driven for me because I had a ton of student debt. Mm-hmm. I had a family situation which was a little precarious because it didn't go well when I came out, and so I had like a I didn't know I didn't exactly know what was going to happen in terms of like how independent I was going to be for the rest of my life. Even, you know, as a 19-year-old, as a, as a 17-year-old. And so I I made these decisions about like trying to take care of myself as much as possible. And so I majored in what I majored in because I accidentally... What did you major in? Public policy. Okay. And the re- literally the reason thats that was my major is because when I realized I might have to be totally on my own and 100% self-supporting and having not planned for that, the courses that I had taken aimlessly in college thus far and <laughs> figured out which... Major. those made up the largest proportion of,
1: so you, and then applied went, to that major. You went and drew the sort of bullseye around the arrow. <laughs> yes, that's
0: exactly right. It's yes, exactly what I did. Look at what I have been doing. That must be who I am.
1: It's actually not, I think, the worst way to pick a major I've ever heard. Yeah, it, did. You know, it worked I mean, out. Yeah. It's kind of a revealed preference sort of thing, right? Like, okay, what am I really interested in? Okay, I'll major. I'll major in that.
0: Yeah, I definitely was one of those kids who got to college and had no idea how to do college. One of the first courses that I signed up for, it had a reserve reading, like a reading list and then a reserve reading list. And the reserve reading list was like things (laughs) that you can look at for 20 minutes. Right. And then you have to give back because there's only one of those copies, one copy of that book in the library. And so the whole class has to use them. Oh, strange. So you can only check it out on reserve. Yeah. So check it out. And if you've got a lot of quarters and you don't mind flirting with copyright (laughs) law, photocopy the whole thing, which is what most people did, or just look at it, take your notes and then give it back. And you're only allowed to have it for a few minutes. I checked out the entire reserve list and took all the books home having oh, wow. no idea that this was a system that didn't work this way i figured i'd got i got all those books right. wow i'm amazed they were all available <laughs> and i came back to the i got all these like started getting notices in my mailbox these like fluorescent colored notices that I was... I got a call from the library. I was, this is a crazy thing. And I brought all the books back, and it was like a, a multi-hundred dollar fine. Oh, my God. Having had the books for two days or three days at this point.
1: And are these like rare books, or are they are just books that didn't It was they like an art have? class, so it was okay. like, you know,
0: something that they didn't have a lot of copies right. of or something. But I had screwed the entire class. <laughs> and I had humiliated myself, and I had incurred hundreds of dollars in fines. <laughs> And I had no idea how any of this worked. And I'm glad that I didn't go in and say, like, ah, oh, clearly I'm going to be an Asian languages major. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm glad that I was stupid enough, I flunked out of and failed that and was humiliated by a lot of initial things, settled into things that I wanted to do that I was more suited for, and then ended up that finding my major that way it ended up sort of working out
1: so you leave college after 3 years so you, yeah. you graduate and, and move to the bay area right yeah i
0: moved to san francisco um,
1: and and you were at stanford right yeah Yeah. so not that far up a couple right. hours right and north. i was
0: a little bit connected to the aids activist movement in san
1: francisco from being in a commutable distance and how long between then and going to oxford
0: i moved to san francisco must have been in 1993 I moved to Oxford in 1995 or 96, I think. So, a so actually a couple of years. Yeah.
1: And were you primarily doing activism?
0: I worked for Espresso Bongo, which was my...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I prefer to actually just let that be what I think it might be.
0: <laughs> <laughs> actually, I mispr- forgive me, I mispronounced it. It was Expresso Bongo.
4: Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Because it was fast <laughs> and also jungly. It was actually a, a coffee place that was oriented toward West Coast financial markets people. Oh, interesting. And the markets open at 9 a.m. on the East Coast. They open at 6 a.m. right on the West Coast. And so we opened at 5. So I'd have to be there at 4.30. Oh, so that was my first job yeah. after Stanford. That was awesome.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible. Did, did, did it have uh, – I'm sorry, I have to ask. Do you have to wear any jungle-themed no, outfits, but the like whole, safari we were, hats or anything? It was like, like a
0: hut. And the okay. hut was kind of Polynesian, which didn't make <laughs> very much sense. Like, kind of, it was tiki, grass skirty. Right. So,
1: solid culturally appropriation-based coffee strategy.
0: Cultural misappropriation. <laughs> deeply, it was it was a confused thing. I worked there, and then I was and I was in ACT UP, and then eventually I got a job at a place called the AIDS Legal Referral Panel, which was which was a useful place it was basically people who are hiv positive who needed legal help of any kind particularly you know people would need help with wills and, and power of attorney and that kind of stuff and they could come to ALRP and get either direct legal services from the staff attorneys there or they'd get if they had more complicated thing there was a whole panel of attorneys who would do that work for free and I worked on the, in the policy—they had one policy shop. They mm-hmm. had one person who worked there who worked on basically laws that needed to be changed and regulations that needed to be changed to facilitate this kind of stuff for people living and dying with AIDS. And I worked—I was, was the secondary person in that shop. That was really useful for me, being a street activist in all my personal time, and then to have my work time be kind of a lobbyist in a way. I mean, we were trying to get laws and regulations changed, definitely for a nonprofit cause and with an activist mindset, but also in a crisis mindset. A lot of the people who worked there were themselves HIV positive. This is before protease inhibitors. All the people who were working with every day, everybody was not just HIV positive, a lot of people really in extremis. And so from that environment, going to the state capitol and talking about stuff that needs to be changed... That was the only experience I ever had where I worked directly on legislation. You know, worked with members of the legislature to get stuff written and changed, and worked on, uh, testified at hearings and stuff.
1: So, how then do you go from from there to becoming a Rhodes Scholar? That was weird. <laughs> but I thought a college had to nominate you or something.
0: hmm And weirdly, Stanford nominated me, and I didn't.
1: And you were already gone. You were graduated. Gone. Yeah. Wow.
0: And I had left.
1: You made a big impression I, with those yeah. library books.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe they so wanted
1: much. some library books from Oxford. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> exactly. I know who can get. I know who can get into those stacks.
0: Exactly. That stuff is protected. But unleash <laughs> matto on them. She'll have those things in her socks faster than Sandy Berger can say. Never mind.
1: Ooh, that is a deep cut. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> I'm here all week.
1: Sandy Berger. Just, just, I'm going to do this for the for the audience real quick. Sandy oh, Berger, you don't
0: give, let people Google it. All right, you can, oh, no, no, you no. can Google Actually, Sandy I Berger. I don't want to hear the Ezra Klein version of Sandy Berger's socks.
1: Sandy Berger, national security advisor in the Clinton administration. I believe. That was his possession. Sandy Berger goes into classified archives and smuggles a bunch of documents out in his socks. And gets um, caught. And gets caught. I would say it is it is fair to characterize this as Embarrassing for him, yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> in the long run, and actually, frankly, less of a scandal in DC than I would have thought at the time. It I, seemed like yes. a big deal to me.
0: I felt like that was one of those. And Sandy Berger has since passed away. I felt like when that happened, it was one of those examples of oh, political capital matters. Yes. Like had that happened to Mark Penn. Had that happened to Lanny Davis? Had that happened to any I think other- at that
1: moment, Mark Penn also had a lot of political capital. I think that might have changed since, but but Mark Penn in, in that age, right? In he, that mo- really? He led Hillary Clinton's 08 campaign. Oh, God. He, he was big back then. So I one of the uh, – a piece I wrote way back in the day, which when I go back, I really like, but it's meaner than I write now. Yeah. But I wrote a review. Mark Penn is a pollster and, and did this uh, – was a big advisor to Bill Clinton to later led Hillary Clinton's campaign as her chief strategist. But he wrote a book called Microtrends.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was what he was kind of famous for was this demographic subslicing of like working exurban moms. But Microtrends was just <laughs> – I do remember mean, how terrible it was. <laughs> my fair part of that book was it had a chapter about how lefties were like one of the big microtrends coming. And so at the beginning, <laughs> it was talking about grassroots activism. And it talked about some stuff that made you think he was talking about political lefties. But then he was just talking about left-handed people. <laughs> And then it was just like more lefties in the world needs more Napoleons and Steve Jobs. And he just did this thing where he said there have been famous smart people before who were left-handed. So more left-handed people means more famous smart people in the future. I remember I, I wrote this and it was like – Look at these like,
0: children. We've painted blue. They seem happy. Let's paint other children blue. It just – for a
1: pollster to make that level of correlation causation error – I remember I wrote it was like a fireman throwing, like, a toaster into the blaze. Just, like, total lack of familiarity (laughs) with the relevant techniques. Like, I just... Mark Penn was a weird, a weird moment in all of our lives. But I, and he might be a very smart guy, right? This is what I know about him: is micro trends and kind of broad politics. And Burson, Mar- Burson is not a Marsteller,
0: right? I mean, PR assistance to the satanic manifestations of the world, <laughs> right? Like, if you've killed more than a thousand people but fewer than five thousand people, <laughs> you're not going to the Hague. You're going to Burson Marsteller.
1: Well, <laughs> what well, was like... always amazing to me, and I think it spoke to some of the political what the Democratic Party was like at that moment was that Burstyn Marsteller had a division of itself where it would work on sort of anti-labor organizing, right? It would help businesses yeah. do crisis communications when someone's trying to unionize a shop. And I always found it really fascinating as an example of labor's lack of political power at that moment, yeah. that someone who that was part of their business could have that level of influence in democratic politics.
0: Well, it's just lip service to union rights, lip service right. and willingness to accept union support and labor support and everything that comes with that for democratic politicians but no actual dedication or even understanding of the importance of the cause it's the thinness of the democratic party at least the democratic party elite on that subject it's just ugh, it's <laughs> but i think so back to going to, going socks. to take
1: away your going to steal library books with your socks okay you're in you're in the bay area how do you get nominated by Stanford for a Rhodes? I don't know.
0: They just picked me. And so it was news to me. But um, You weren't
1: thinking of going to law school or something no, like that at that point? No, not at all. Okay. And
0: I, I mean, I'm not a planner. I'm not a person who thinks ahead.
1: Uh, um, now I just want to go into that whole Joker speech. Oh, I don't know. Have you not seen the The Dark Knight? Um,
0: oh, the last movie I saw in a movie theater was <sighs> Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon.
1: Oh maybe I'm just gonna <laughs> have us in post-production here, like enter in part of the, the Joker speech. Like I wouldn't even know what to do if I caught the car. Like it's a, you can find this on YouTube. It is an amazing speech about not being a planner. Okay. Now I didn't rig those charges. You're man.
3: Your plan. Do I really look like a guy with a plan? You know what I am? I'm a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't know what to do with one if I caught it. You know, I just do things. The mob has plans. The cops have plans. Gordon's got plans. You know, they're schemers. Schemers trying to control their little worlds. I'm not a schemer. I try to show the schemers how pathetic... Their attempts to control things really are.
0: And it's the evil guy.
3: It is
1: is Heath Ledger Um. in the greatest acting performance anyone has ever done. I will note that I've always felt that if you look at that movie correctly, that speech is complete lies because the Joker is clearly an amazing planner. Mm -hmm. But as a statement of not being a planner, I think it really captures the ethos. Who
0: is he making the statement to?
1: Two-Face. To
0: another bad guy.
1: To another bad guy.
0: Aren't you a comic book person? I am a comic book person but not a superhero
1: person. Interesting. So you're, you're you're more Well, wait, I've read a fantastic introduction from you to a Catwoman graphic novel.
0: Yeah, that was pretty good. Which is a
1: really amazing. Yeah, well they made novel. this
0: incredible decision that they were going to make that character into this incredibly politically salient yes. thing. Yeah, so that was that was really And also those Greg Rooka, like anything Greg Rooka touches, like he could if he writes grocery lists, I'll read them. I mean, it's <laughs> just He's amazing. No, I'm kind of like a, I'm like spies and historical and
1: impressionistic. I'm, I'm going to completely sidetrack us for a minute. What are your three favorite graphic novels, comic books? Like of all time or that I'm reading right now? <laughs> uh, let's do th- three of all time and then one you're reading now.
0: Okay. Queen and Country. Okay. Which is, have you ever read Queen
1: and Country? I have not. I've heard of it. Other people have recommended it. To great me. thing
0: about Queen and Country is that it is a book based on a TV show, which never happens. Right? That's backwards. Yeah. But the TV show is called The Sandbaggers. And The Sandbaggers was a BBC TV show about kind of a MI6 unit of operational super spies. But the whole thing basically took place in—they had one set built for the— show and it was just a room full of filing cabinets. And so it's like they, they clearly like they shot everything in that one room. People were constantly slamming the door in order to like make a point because there was nothing else to work with. And then the other shot would be them like on a hill in Yorkshire. Like that was supposed to be Russia and then the next one it was supposed to be Finland and then the next one is supposed to be like somewhere in Antarctica.
1: You gotta choose that hill really yeah, carefully. It was such for that it was shot. it
0: was such a great TV show. Shot on such a shoestring and it ended in the middle of its first season Okay, and it's kind of I Claudia. And I Sarah, wish they'd done BBC. this with Veronica
1: Mars and turned it into graphic novels, and not done this sort of Kickstarter movie effort. Not that the movie was bad, but it, there's wh- I'd really enjoy Veronica Mars graphic novel.
0: And, well, and there's anyway the, the the idea that you would take something unfinished and say I wish that was finished. I'm going to finish it in a different medium yeah. is a great thing. And that's so that's amazing. what Queen, Queen and Country ended up becoming a full arc, multi volume comic book and graphic novel set based on that. They had a, and it had a, um, a spin off called Whiteout, which was really good as well. Highly recommended. Also, Sandbaggers—if you can find it on DVD—is totally worth watching, and it ends right in the middle, and so you can invent <laughs> your own. In, you can invent your own ending. So I really like that. I really like Saga. Is the one that I'm reading right now. Do you? Know I, that so
1: one? I have a, one of my writers at Vox, Alex Abed Santos, has been singing the praises of Saga. He does a lot of comic book coverage for us, and has incredible taste on this.
4: Yeah, it's but really But he's good.
1: really been. Pushing Saga, and I really want to read it.
0: Usually for me, this is going to make a lot of people hate me, but anything in space, anything with space, uh-huh. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. You're either space-minded for your fiction or you're yes. not. I am not space-minded for fiction.
1: I, I am actually generally not space-minded, not because I don't like things in space, but I don't like the particular obsessions people who write about things in space have. Yeah. I am actually not that interested in the technicalities of how you get places fast. Yeah, I kind of want you to just assert it. And then we invented the thingamajig, yeah. and now we're there.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and- Which
1: is a fundamental Star Wars, Star Trek divide. Space is much more of a character in Star Trek than mm-hmm. it is in Star Wars. People who like Star Trek and that kind of thing tend to be interested in space epics that are much more technical about the question of space. Mm-hmm. And I always feel like in a stylized way, the Star Wars divide is you're kind of using the distances of space to create semi-realistic other worlds that exist by different rules.
0: I think you're right that in Star Trek, and again, not my field, but in Star Trek, the idea of space as a unitary Mm. thing that must be contended with philosophically as the backdrop to everything that you're doing. And yeah, there's little worlds in it where you can have minor plots, but the minor plots are subsumed under the overall greater idea of space and its melancholy prospects. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. So that said, saga Saga. Saga is in space- But it's totally (laughs) worth it. There's another graphic novel that I sent to a bunch of people as a present because I was like, everybody's going to think about this the way that I do. It's going to change everybody's minds. None of the people who I sent it to had any reaction to it whatsoever.
1: <laughs> so I'm going to try to triple down on that. That's right always now. such a disappointing thing, too. Oh God! Yeah, I've actually stopped trying to have. If I like a band or something, yeah, I will actively try to not have anybody go with me. Yeah, because I just can't take the weight of their expectations. Like them <laughs> it, not liking it is too crushing for me as a person. It comes
0: back and it makes you think. It makes you think about it in a way you didn't have to. Yeah, I, I did. I brought this on myself. This, was, <laughs> this band was working for me until I had your blank-eyed stare. At right. Yes. But it's a nonfiction biography of Richard Feynman, the physicist, F-E-Y-N-M-A-N.
1: That that actually, I am super fascinated. Oh, it's so good. It's called Feynman. And it's a graphic novel. A
0: graphic novel. And it is so freaking good. And I've probably bought... 25 copies of it. Huh. It always seems like the appropriate gift to, me. <laughs> like I've given it to my friends, like kids who are getting interested in science. And I've like given it to friends who are like going into AA because there's this interesting alcoholism thing. I've given it to friends who are interested in nuclear weapons because there's this whole Manhattan Project. Nobody has ever
1: responded to it. When me all you have is an interest in Richard Feynman. <laughs> Every life experience <laughs> as, a loved one or friend goes through calls a for Richard, Richard Feynman. <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: I'm just going to use this as an opportunity. Have you read Wicked and the Divine? No. Oh, that's going on right now. Sort of in the same kind of... I don't want to say same style saga, but it's part of that same movement. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about it a lot lately because a lot of the characters are based on – or one of the key characters is visually based on David Bowie.
0: Oh, But it's a a really
1: incredible series. That's great. A lot of people were like, I would like to hear what's going on with Rachel Maddow, and I've now signed up for 10 minutes of graphic novel recommendations. (laughs) But I think they should read Wicked and the Divine.
0: (laughs) Wicked and the Divine. Okay. I feel like I have to make a note, but perhaps I'll just listen to this later and be reminded. (laughs) All right. So – Grad school. Grad school. <laughs> <laughs> that's what this was about. Yeah, not a planner. No plans on going to
1: grad school. I. Oh, yeah, I, we got on this through Batman. Sorry. That's right. Okay.
0: Activism, for me, was very urgent at the time, right? So this is the early 90s. And if you're an AIDS activist and you've grown up as a gay kid in the San Francisco Bay Area, that means... Contending with a, a lot of people who are sick, and a lot of people who are dying, and a lot of people who your own age who are dying—like it's a very urgent time. So the idea of leaving the country to work on my graduate education is not a not an appealing prospect. But at the same time, finding out that I've been nominated for this scholarship yeah. by my school the key word there was scholarship. You have a chance if you follow this path that has been started for you by somebody else. I never asked for it. It just got started. Then you can get your grad degree for free. I was like, hmm, Hmm. that is totally what motivated me to do it. And it was a very hard decision to apply. But because my college put me up for it, I did it. And I ended up winning and going. I was very conflicted about it at the time because I really didn't have grad school desire. And then once I was there, I just, again, decided to try to finish it fast.
1: I watched some act-up documentaries recently. There was a, an amazing one that came out probably two years ago. I'm just blanking on its name right now.
0: Uh, the, plague. The, yeah, yeah, the, the, plague. the Plague. Yeah, The Plague.
1: And I, I don't I think I'd I realize. So one of my very close family members died in 1994 of AIDS. Mm. I had not really realized until I watched that documentary how much, if it had just been a couple years later. Right. Yeah. The outcomes were completely different. I had not realized how time boxed, how rapid, you know, there was a turning point yeah. once the treatments began to be accepted. And so this is 96, 97, you were saying? Yeah. How do you think about that question of, on the one hand, I mean, a Rhodes scholarship, one thing I have to imagine is in your head is people who get those often make tremendous changes. At the moment you do this, the president is a Rhodes scholar.
4: mm mm-hmm. Right? Yeah.
1: And on the other hand, like, there's this very immediate kind of direct action. That I'm part of. World you're part of. Yeah. It's very emotionally. It
0: was, yeah, it was very, and, and that what you're talking about, I'm sorry about your loss. Thank you. The International AIDS Conference was in Vancouver in 1996. And I came back, I was living in England doing my grad degree, and I came back and was part of that conference in a lot of different ways, both as an you know activist protesting some things, but also... I was one of the people in in the world who was working on AIDS in prisons at that point. Right. It's a niche field, so I was participating in that level too. And the protease inhibitors that were effectively launched on the world at that conference and started to become the protocol for treating things really did give people a lease on life. And one of the things that I went through, which was unique and weird and is still troubling for me, and this is this is very arcane AIDS activist history, but... In San Francisco at the time, there were actually two chapters of ACT UP. There had been ACT UP San Francisco, and it split, and it became ACT UP San Francisco and ACT UP Golden Gate. And ACT UP Golden Gate was actually the sort of more normal group, they ended up being very, very focused on treatment activism, on getting new therapies approved, and on getting clinical trials opened up and changed in a way that would be most beneficial to the most desperate people. And they were great. Active Golden Gate was really, really good and really effective and really aggressive and big ultimately because Mm -hmm. of it. One way to become a big activist movement is to win things. And people want to join a group that can win things. And I felt like I couldn't keep up. At ACT UP Golden Gate, I actually felt like I didn't have anything to offer. I felt like I wasn't a science and math kid. It was a high performing group of people who were operating at a very high level that I came in that I couldn't totally understand. And I was impressed and I wanted to be supportive, but I felt like all I could really be
1: was a warm body. Do you think in, in retrospect that was correct or do you think that was a kind of imposter syndrome that you were putting on yourself?
0: Some of both. I think that had I decided the best thing to do is to become an AIDS, acti- uh, an AIDS treatment activist, I could have buckled down, found what I needed was a mentor and contributed in that way. Mm-hmm. And I learned that through something that happened to me a couple of years later. But in the end, what I decided to do, because I knew I wanted to work on prisons, is that I ended up going to ACT UP San Francisco. And the reason there had been a split, one of the reasons there had been a split, is that there was a schismatic group among AIDS activists and among people who are HIV positive that didn't basically believe that AIDS was real. That didn't believe that HIV caused it, that didn't believe that antiretroviral medications could actually treat something that was a much more inchoate syndrome that wasn't caused by a virus, and so why would you take these antivirals? And actually, the thing that was killing people was the medicine. And those treatment denialists, those HIV denialists, ended up in ACT UP San Francisco. Huh. which is where I was because I wanted to work on AIDS in prisons. And that's where the AIDS in prisons group was too. And I was not a denialist. I believed in AIDS. And how HIV big studies. is this group of
1: people? October a few dozen. Oh, few so dozen. it's not, no, it's not, not like 600 people. Oh, then. no. Okay. And we were pretty
0: successful and had a lot of wins working on the prison side of things. But all the other people in the group, all the other HIV positive people in the group ended up dead. And I ended up, I think, responsible for a lot of other people's unnecessary deaths. Because it's one thing to say AZT is killing people when people are taking AZT or DDI or D4T or any of the other early drugs that were somewhat effective but were not necessarily keeping people alive for a very long time. It's another thing to tell people not to take their medicine when your medicine is a cocktail of drugs that can keep you alive for years and at least bridge you until the next cocktail of drugs, which might keep you alive for a normal lifespan. And so I both know a lot of people who died and know a lot of people who i unnecessarily caused people's deaths young people's deaths you know people who are the most earnest effective inspiring people i've ever known in my life and it was this crazy corner of the movement
1: do you think given yeah. what people knew at the time that that given what information was out there given sort of the 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 panic do you feel that that view at the time was more defensible or understandable than than it than it feels now Or do you think it was kind of the equivalent of, I don't want to say the equivalent, but more like denying climate change now, right? More like you're just refusing to believe evidence because you you don't want to.
0: There's another element to it, which is about the fact that it's coming from people who are sick. Right. There wasn't a lot of HIV denialism, at least in San Francisco at the time. There was elsewhere in the country, but there wasn't a lot of HIV denialism coming from onlookers, It was from people who themselves were facing their own mortality and had come up with a way to understand that that was more coherent to them than what was really going on. And so it's not only conspiratorial, it's also hopeful in a way. Like All we have to do is stop believing the lies and start taking care of ourselves in a different way. And this culture that wants us dead, which was very clear that the culture did want us dead, that was not a conspiratorial idea. The reason so many people died from AIDS is because America made a decision that that was okay. To take that understanding and channel that into something that might be the solution rather than needing to work through American culture and American politics in order to find the way, the path to live. It was crazy, but I understand why people were there. And a lot of people who I was close to were there. And it's just, it's a terrible thing to look back on.
2: Did you know the Tribeca Festival premieres more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts and live tapings of popular podcasts you know and love. Attend Slow Burn, the hit narrative podcast exploring the Briggs Initiative. Experience an exclusive live taping of Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy as they investigate complex stories of people who've done wrong or been wronged. Or get a vibe check on today's politics, entertainment, and news with a live taping of Vibe Check with Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com.
1: So you're in the midst of plague, to to use the documentary's title, and you get this offer to go to the roads. What is that transition like? I have to imagine... The emotional feeling of that period in your life is super intense. Mm -hmm. And then you go to this sort of most life of the mind (laughs) kind of experience I think one can possibly have. Like, what is your first day at Oxford like?
0: Uh, Dark. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a couple things happened. I realized as soon as I got there that I wanted to go as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. The whole reason I was there, what could justify me being there was to get this graduate degree for free and nobody would ever think I ever had to do anything else. I'd t- have punched my ticket, right. but do it now, do it fast, and get back. I had applied to go to the master's program. I didn't have a master's degree. i only had a bachelor's degree. And I applied for the master's program. I, if I had applied directly to the doctoral program, I would not have been admitted because I didn't have a master's degree. But I figured out a great loophole, <laughs> which is that, yeah, they won't accept you into the doctoral program with only a bachelor's, but they will accept you to transfer into the doctoral program oh. from the master's program. So day one, I start my master's program. I also apply to transfer to the doctoral <laughs> program. <laughs> so I spent like three days as a master's this, candidate at Is Oxford. this
1: something that... that was this like Samizdat passed on through different Rhodes Scholars, or were you like literally like up late reading the rule book and you're like, aha,
0: ding, ding, like ding, I ding, know ding. how to. Yeah,
1: that's me. Oh, wow. <laughs>
0: yes. Good like, for you. I, was, I, didn't try, I didn't feel like I was part of a cohort of gr- a group of people that had anything else going on in their lives like me. Like, I didn't feel like I arrived at Oxford with my buddies, the Rhodes Scholars. <laughs> right. you know, I really felt like I was out on a tether in the world doing something very strange. So I did that. I got into the doctoral program. That meant that I didn't have to take any classes at all. And then the next order of business was to leave Oxford (laughs) 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 because I couldn't handle like
1: student life. So so just to clarify, so you're, the reason you have to take classes is what you're doing is working in order to apply to the the PhD program, I assume, basically, you had to get a dissertation topic approved. Yeah. And so once that is approved... An then the area is,
0: of research, and then you get your... Then district, you just sort of yeah. go off
1: and do your thing. Yeah.
0: Basically, you, you write a book. Okay. Your book has to be good. It has to meet all of these standards, and you have to meet with the thesis advisor, and you need to hit all these benchmarks along the way, but that's not classwork. It's all research work. You know, I made friends in Oxford, and I had good roommates, and I had a great few different thesis advisors. And I did I did actually go to some classes because I wanted to. I took a lot of statistics while I was there just because I enjoyed it and because it was helpful for the work that I was doing. But within a little bit more than a year, I moved to London and helped found an organization called the AIDS Treatment Project, okay. which brought, brings me back to the ACT UP. Experience, which makes me realize that I could have been a treatment activist because in London I helped start the first treatment organization that they had. There was a group called the National AIDS Manual, which did consumer oriented research and treatment information for HIV positive people. And then we started a group, me and another Mar- American guy actually, started a group to essentially advocate for promising drugs to make it into the NHS formulary for people to have access to clinical trials. And the approval process for drugs is very different in the UK than it is in the US, but we sort of brought a US style treatment activist orientation to the NHS's consideration about what to do about treatment and started that. And we were also a place where we were in a hotline where people would call in who were HIV positive, who had questions about their treatment, and we'd help, you know, get people into either experimental stuff or trials. And, and that's what I did the whole rest of the time I was overseas.
1: So then you decided to kind of punish yourself into Massachusetts in order to, to finish a dissertation. Yeah. Given the experience you've had at that point, why finish a dissertation?
0: Because I had to punch the ticket. I could not justify to myself having taken that time living away from having done
1: nothing at all (laughs) of value for for people.
0: (laughs) Well, not not feeling like I had done enough of value. Uh I mean I came I remember every time I'd come back to the States, I'd be involved with like my friends here who were doing this incredibly vital stuff. Yeah, we were doing our own thing, but it was like you know, it's like my my culture, my people are doing a thing I want to help. I needed to get the thing that came at the end of that process in order to justify having done it. And I did. Ultimately, I got my I did my orals and, and got my dissertation approved and got my degree a week before 9/11. So 9, you're a doctor. A week before 9/11. Technically, I am a doctor. Oh man. You can call me now, Dr. Matto you if you like. Maddo,
1: yes. <laughs> During this period politically, I've heard a great line from you that I think you said once that, you know, you're a liberal now, which means you're an Eisenhower Republican. Mm-hmm. During this period, do you think of yourself as a liberal, as a radical? Do you believe in the political system? Do you not? Uh, I'm curious about your your politics in this era.
0: In that era, electoral politics for me was of about the same size and the same source of interest as like uh, the TV show Family Ties or like (laughs) sometimes- So
1: incredibly important and interesting (laughs) to you. (laughs) I mean, and I was aware who the president... Says a long-time Nick at Night Watcher. Yeah. I, mean,
0: <laughs> I was aware of who the president was. You know, like right, I yeah. had feelings about good guys and bad guys in politics, mm-hmm. and I was involved in various protests that picked on specific decision makers. But I remember recently, like in the last couple of years, I I did an event where I was sort of in conversation with Donna Shalala, and I was talking to her about Donna Shalala thing. She's <laughs> a university now, and she has, you know... She's Former a, Health
1: and Human Services Secretary yeah, for, for Clinton.
0: And... I just remember thinking at the time, like, there was a time in my life when the only thing I knew about you was the number of deaths that me and my friends attributed to your decision not to approve needle exchange as an American
1: policy. Did you say that to her?
0: In a manner of speaking, I said it huh. to her privately. Not as a, like, yeah, I'm yeah. confronting no, no, you. Yeah, yeah, no, course. Thing, but, like, listen, you have to know, like, this, you exist in a lot of people's consciousness in one specific way. And a time in my life, this is the only thing that I knew about you and the only thing that I thought was morally important about you. And she was totally cognizant of that. When people think about you that way, you learn it. Yeah. Uh, and, it and it sinks in and it matters. I haven't gone back on that feeling about her, but I know a lot more about her now besides.
1: So the activism you were doing, it wasn't part and, and given, as you said, the way the political system and the way the country had kind of permitted a lot of this to happen. It had chosen not to mobilize certainly around yeah. AIDS and HIV at that time. It remains as an issue reasonably specific. It doesn't become part of a larger critique of who has power in the system or how power is wielded. Something I've always been fascinated about by ACT UP, and then you mentioned it a little bit around your work with the NHS and bringing that kind of activism to that kind of government-driven medical care process, Mm -hmm. is how incredibly sophisticated it was about where were the pressure points in the system, like technical pressure points of decision-making bodies and panels that set standards. And, and I've also thought this is a really interesting intersection of, of, of a movement that is very radical, but also incredibly, incredibly, by necessity, clear-eyed focused, about ways in which focused. power is wielded that most people never think about, right? Not just through elections, right? But through a meeting where usually there's only lobbyists and a couple of academics.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's, it comes from being a movement that is not... Ideologically or esoterically interested in reform for reform's sake because we think we ought to have cleaner systems of blah 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 right it's not that it's about I need to get more drugs into more bodies right. and the drugs need to be better and faster when you're working on something that has that sort of imperative, particularly if it 's your personal imperative, this needs to get done before my T cell count falls below x or i 'm not going to be able to do anything right I mean when you're motivated that way, it makes you learn the intricacies really fast because every time something gets held up, you have to understand why it's being held up and have to figure out a way around it. And so you end up getting very, very deep, very fast in your policy skills. And I do think there's been an effort. One of the legacies of the AIDS treatment movement has been that... Other people working on other issues have tried to learn from the way the AIDS activists did it. But I also think the FDA in particular and some other elements of the sort of drug development pipeline in this country did broadly get better and learn those lessons because the activists forced them into forced them into it. But it was it's definitely a transactional Technocratic approach to muscling things through, and I like that as activism. I mean, I don't think of myself as an activist anymore, but what I tried to do as an activist was basically approach each thing that I wanted to get as a math problem. You know, like there are. I believe in the reasons that I could I, that something should be different. So here's the thing that I want to happen in the world. You know, I want people who are. Dying of AIDS in prisons to be allowed to die in secure hospices rather than dying in jail and infirmaries. That's what I want. Me just saying that I want that and expressing the moral righteousness of that is not enough to get that to happen. Who is the person who can decide to make that happen? Well, the hospices need to be good with it. Okay, let's go to the hospices. Who is the person that makes the decision about whether a person goes to the hospices? Well, there's a category of decision-making here that is for people who do not have life sentences, they're susceptible to these kinds of decision-makers. And then there's a whole different category which says, you know, as a matter of policy, those people can't be. So let's change the Local decision-makers, now let's change the law. And just doing it piece by piece by piece. And when it comes to changing the law, why won't this law change? Because the committee chairman who's responsible for this doesn't care about this as an issue. Well, what does he care about? He cares about golf. Okay. Who does he golf with? Let's find whoever he golfs with wife and figure out where she goes to church and make her pastor care about this and have her pastor talk to her about this, talk to her friend about it, talk to her husband about it, talk to the commissioner about it. All right. Now we've got a hearing. I mean, That, that was my life before I got into media. And that's still the way that I think about activism. So when people tell me now, oh, on MSNBC, you're such an activist, I'm like, oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Now, thank you. I appreciate that I may make you have activisty feelings. But activism is a very specific and technocratic thing.
1: That is an amazing description of activism. Let let me ask you one thing Hmm. about that. So you're starting out on a process like that. How do you gather information? Because the kinds of information you're talking about, and particularly at that time when you can't Google things as easily, you maybe Google a little bit. Uh, I'm actually, I do not remember the exact year Google became a thing. So maybe you're altivisting this important (laughs) information. Use net grouping. How do you begin to find the answer to the question when you're not in a position where everybody will take your call? Mm-hmm. Who is the person and what do they care about and why do they care about it? What What is the approach you took to finding kinds of information that are not easily publicly available and, and arguably some people don't want you to find because they don't want to deal with the consequences of you finding it?
0: Yeah. It, ultimately, it's reporting or intelligence gathering in a way. I mean, the way that and this this sort of goes in two directions. You You have to know people. You have to be physically in places where you can have side conversations with people where they tell you things that they don't think are important, but they are important mm-hmm. to you. And you need to cultivate trust among people who do not have the same aims as you, but who do not differ with you. So, obviously... Having opponents in the world is one thing. Most of the kinds of activism that I worked on, we didn't have people who were trying to stop us from what we were doing. We just needed more people who didn't care to start caring enough that they would take a little risk to do what we wanted. That's organizing, organizing and gathering information. The other thing about it, though, that ended up being really relevant and interesting given my later life being in media is that on a lot of the activist issues that I worked on, it was very important that we got no press Um, And I think from the outside, one of the things people assume about activism is that you're trying to consciousness raise around an issue and get public discussion and raise public awareness Uh and raise the profile of the issue. Not if you're talking about the comfort of death row prisoners. Like, you don't actually want that subjected to a popular referendum because that's going to be a knee-jerk, regressive response. And so sometimes what you need for people to be brave is to limit their risk. And some of the ways you limit risk sometimes is by keeping things quiet. And that ended up has ended up being an interesting thing to know and thing to believe in, given that I'm now a person who's in the business of making national news of stuff.
2: Well,
1: what's fascinating about that to sort of draw it out generally is that I think one of the hard lessons for a lot of, particularly liberals in the Obama era, but I think, I think it's something people more broadly have come to recognize in, in politics, is that... There are a lot of situations where for the president to come out and strongly take a position on an issue, for him to raise its profile is going to mean necessarily, like as a condition of him saying that, that every Republican votes against it. Exactly. Right? And that's going to destroy the issue. And so going back, I think, to pretty early in the second term, you see Obama, who's one, you know, a reasonably talented public politician, right, very, very good at giving speeches, very good at, at raising the salience of issues begin to back off of a lot of things he wants to get done, Mm -hmm. right? And try to let these processes happen Kind of quietly. Uh, immigration is definitely an example where when that was going through Congress, Obama very purposefully did not make a lot of public statements on it. and the ones he did make were very muted, calm. Then over the last year, you see Congress do a lot of interesting things. They make this big change to Medicare doctor payments. they come out with this tax bill, and everything is happening behind closed doors. It gets revealed and voted on two days later. And the whole idea is that if you let people find out about it, it's going to polarize. It's going to become something you can't do. That's something that people showboat on instead of work on. Yeah, and it's—I think it's very ethically or, or philosophically uncomfortable place to yeah, be, very, right? Because on yeah. the one hand, it's very a very anti-democratic way to do things, right? The idea that to get things done, you want as few people as possible to know about it. And on the other hand, if you believe in getting the things done, which in any individual case here you may not, but as a general question of political strategy, you may, you know, on something, then you have to ask: Do you want to let this become? a public referenda where every interest group and
0: And I think that the ethics of it really depend on the overall democratic accountability of the system in which this process happens. Mm -hmm. Because it's one thing if you want sort of quiet room, insulated negotiation and policy crafting to happen, and then whatever is the result of that process goes into effect with nobody having a chance to say anything about it or ever repeal it. Right. It's another thing if what happens is you create space for constructive policymaking and negotiation to happen so that you can come up with something viable, and then you elect to introduce that as your bill that gets voted Mm -hmm. on or as your policy that can be repealed or whatever it is in anti-democratic environments i think this kind that type of process is almost unforgivable in literally democratic environments maybe it's necessary especially on things that are otherwise people used to call them hot button issues but i feel like that's giving them too much credit it's more just like things that are instantly made stupid by
1: exposure to
0: <laughs> by exposure to cable news <laughs>
1: I think almost anything now. You know what I mean? I think that... (laughs) Oh, come on! So there is this great book that has really influenced how I think about politics. It's called Beyond Ideology, and it's by a political scientist named Frances Lee. Hmm. And she does this amazing study in it, and she looks at non-controversial issues. So things like should we go to Mars, right? Things that the the, the two parties don't have positions on before they get a vote. Mm -hmm. And she looks on these non-controversial issues. Did the president take a position on it, right? Did he just say as an offhand comment in his State of the Union address, I think it's good when we name post offices after famous people or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when the president does, the chance of a party line vote jumps tremendously, even on <laughs> issues that nobody cares about. Yes. And she'll tell the story of being, she was in a, on a political science fellowship on the Hill, and I think was working with Senate Democrats at the time. And this is when George W. Bush, if you remember this in 2004, I think it is, begins to leak that he wants to go to Mars, mm-hmm. not him personally, although many liberals would have obviously enjoyed that, but wants to send a man to Mars. And Democrats have no real position on going to Mars. And certainly if Barack Obama came out and said, like, we're going to finish John F. Kennedy's work and put a man on, on Mars, they'd be, you know, applauding from the rafters. But they immediately begin developing a reason not to go to Mars, mm-hmm. in this case at the deficit. You know, we've got all these people poor here. We mm-hmm. have this huge deficit. And you're going to start spending money on going to Mars. And just the way in which it... Activates people sort of motivated team-based reasoning. Yes, exactly. Even on things that they just don't have an opinion on before, right? It right. just like literally, if you don't have an opinion, it becomes well. But if they do it, you'll win. And and her big insight is that the president is not just a president; he's party leader, mm-hmm. and right. So is uh, the leader of the opposition in the, in the House or the Senate, and the, the the very kind of fundamental way people end up experiencing this stuff is that. If they take a position, then it is counted in American politics as a win for them if it happens. Yeah. And because elections are zero-sum, you can't let that win happen. And it's a really shitty way to run a railroad. Yeah. And <laughs> and what's interesting about it
0: is that at least President Obama rejects that role, does not want that role, plays that role, mm-hmm. but doesn't want it. I did an interview with him right before he was elected. and. The one useful question I think that I asked him in what was otherwise, it was all right. It was not a a bad (laughs) interview, but I think I really only asked him one useful question, and it was something along the lines of, you have talked a lot about what bad leaders, people like George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, are. You even sometimes talk about them as bad Republicans. But you never talk about conservatism or republicanism being bad for the country. Do you think that the Republican Party and its ideals and conservatism are actually bad? Or do you just think that those two guys are bad at doing it?" <laughs> and his answer was basically like, get off me. Like, I'm about to win. <laughs> like, And I think you'll notice that a lot of Republicans are going to vote for me. And it's because I'm not making a case against... I'm not making a case for democratic politics are better than Republican politics. I'm making a case that I'd be better than George Bush. Huh. And that if you don't like the way that they carry things out, I'll be a competent guy. That was very helpful for me in understanding his approach to winning that election. It ended up also becoming, I think, helpful for me in understanding the way that he's governed and the partisan consequences of the way that he's governed. I mean, it is really, really important for the future of the Democratic Party that in the states, while Barack Obama has been president, the Democratic Party has collapsed. Yeah. you know, Governorships, state legislatures, the consequences in Congress, I mean, there's no chance the Democrats can take the House until what, at least 2022? I mean, <laughs> that matters. And that part of the reason that happened is because I think unlike Joe Biden, who does see himself as a leader of the Democratic Party, President Obama has not approached it that way. And there's consequences for that. And I think that would be a big difference between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, too.
1: So let me do you one worse. Right before Obama is elected, I wrote a feature for The American Prospect. That was predicting something fundamental about his presidency. You asked one question that helped you understand him. I wrote a feature that helped you completely not understand <laughs> really, really would have gotten him wrong if you, if you read this piece and And the feature I was calling Democrats, and I was asking, you know, elected Democrats. And I was asking them, What makes Obama different than Clinton? What part of the party does he come out of? What part of the party does he rely on? What do you expect to happen if you're a member of Congress and he comes in? And the answer I got was was really interesting, actually. What they said is that the underappreciated fact about Obama is that... Nobody thinks about staffing as a really important part of campaigns, not in the kind of the broad public mind. But actually, if you're running against a Clinton, it's really, really fucking hard because Mm. the Clintons have the entire kind of super experienced operative class of the Democratic Party locked up. So where does Obama get a staff capable of challenging a Clinton? Mm -hmm. And the answer they gave me was that in this very unusual moment, which is that he rises to prominence in 2004, right around that speech, In 2004, for different reasons, Tom Daschle is defeated, right? Is Is that the
0: year that he lost?
1: I think think 2004 is the year he loses. And Dick resigns because he's running for president. And so suddenly, the staff and sort of ecosystem of the leader of Senate Democrats and leader of House Democrats go away. Right, they they all of a sudden are without a job, and Obama is able to pick up mm-hmm. these super experienced staffers who give him these very very deep ties to the congressional Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Right, so instead of being part of the Clinton wing of the party, becomes part of the congressional wing of the party. So Pete Rouse, who's Tom Jim, Daschle's Jim former Messina, chief of staff, right? yeah, yeah, I mean, right. so these guys who they were a really big part of the Democratic Party infrastructure. And, you know, in that piece, something people talk about is they're really excited about all the work that the Organizing for America group is beginning to think about doing for state legislatures. Mm -hmm. And so the thing the piece argues is that Obama is going to be focused in a way previous presidents haven't been on party infrastructure building. Because look what he's organizing. Look what they're doing now. Look where he comes out of. And, you know, as you say, the collapse of the Democratic Party's down ballot infrastructure has been stunning under him. I mean, you know, and organizing is, for America just poofed, just poofed. Yeah. And so I really think that was a good piece of reporting but it could not have been more wrong. Like, <laughs> well, somebody ought to
0: go, go back and make the world's greatest boring counterfactual. Right. Where, like <laughs> that life becomes that life that you wrongly predicted becomes true. I mean, what would it? What would this presidential race right now even look like if there were 30 Democratic governors in the country? I mean, it would be right. a totally different race.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think people quite appreciate how screwed the Democratic Party is. Because we have this national conversation right now, and it's a continuous one, about the crisis in the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is on some level. like, a, And, like, that party seems to be ideologically cracking up. Yeah. But they do completely control every level of government that is not (laughs) the presidency, every single one. And then you have Democrats who are like super smug and have nothing but the White House. And if there's a recession, they're not going to have the White House either, right? right? Like, or probably won't.
0: Yeah. And you look like democratic power, the way that one of the ways that that expresses itself on Capitol Hill is that you've got Nancy Pelosi, who is actually magic. Nancy Pelosi <laughs> controls the Democrats in the House of Representatives with magic power. She can make them do anything she wants. I mean, she could make them do like Ari Rang style North Korean gymnastics if she wanted yes. to. And it would just like with her mind, she can make it happen. That's awesome. But if there's only 14 of them, <laughs> then that's amazing. Yeah, you don't have huge ideological fights. There aren't Heath Shulers in the Democratic Party anymore. But that's in part because you lost every swing seat that there is, because they're, they're, all those districts got written in such a way because of Republican state legislatures, so that Democrats have no chance of ever being in the majority again. And so enjoy your ideological non-schismatic <laughs> or you know uh, working togetherness, but it's it's not helping. It's really not helping people win. It's interesting. We had some man on the street tape that we didn't use on the show the other night. We just cut it for time, but we've been asking reporters who are covering big Trump events to just walk the line of people who are waiting to get in and mm-hmm. ask them, are you actually a Trump supporter? Why? You know, what, what, are you, what are you here to try to learn tonight? Because he does turn out these very large groups. Yeah. And we had this one guy in Oklahoma who said, "You know, this all started for me when Glenn Beck came and did a rally here came a few years ago, and they said at the end of the rally, what are you going to do to change your country? We need everybody here right now to raise your hand if you are committed to doing something Not just being here, doing something to change your country, to take it back from the evil Marxist Kenyan. And what they wanted everybody to do was run for an office of some level. And Mm -hmm. so this guy was like, So now I'm an elected county commissioner, because Glenn Beck told me to, because I came to a Republican event during some election cycle that didn't matter a few years ago. And what they asked the crowd to do was start running for office. You know, and it's just random man on the street stuff. But like when's the last time you heard a Democrat say that? I was at some sort of lefty or progressive organizing group, I was at some event for a Democratic candidate, and they insisted that I I ran for dog catcher because I was there. It huh. just doesn't happen anymore.
1: There's this bit of research I read not too long ago about how the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are different, and it has a lot of kind of ways it tries to get at this. But the big thing it says about the two parties is that Democrats are more motivated by transactional policy. That when you look at how Democrats govern, when you look at what they say, when you look at whether they like compromise or not, that kind of when you look at their interest group ecosystem, that over and over again they tend to want health care or they want this particular education reform or they want this change to social security or this protection of social security. And Republicans are more philosophically motivated mm-hmm. that, you know, they they care a lot more about politicians who stick by their principles and in office, like they approach it in a much more holistic way. And that's one reason the two parties have a lot of trouble working together because Republicans always think Democrats are plotting some massive ideological takeover of the government when they just want this health care bill passed. Mm-hmm. And. Democrats don't understand why Republicans won't take half a loaf because Democrats would because they just want as much of the policy as they can get. But I think it speaks to that down, down ballot issue because being county commissioner may not seem super interesting to you if you're interested in big picture policy gets. Mm-hmm. But it might seem really interesting to you if you're interested in restraining the power of the government, yeah, or taking, taking up it back space or, with yeah. your
0: with your principled
1: and and, your, yeah. and I think liberals have this kind this, this sometimes kind of odd thing where they think where, where they'll argue how can you be part of government if you don't even like government? Mm-hmm. But actually, this is a way in which it flips that if you're abstractly motivated to be part of government as opposed to specifically motivated to be part of government, then being part of any level of government can yes. actually satisfy that. that That's need. exactly
0: right, and it's just important that it's government somewhere. You can't be like in, in that model, you know, a Democrat or a person who's operating under this sort of democratic schema would also be happy being part of their church governing board, right. would also be happy being part of, you know, like being on the board of directors of their local YMCA or mm-hmm. something. But it's important actually to take a government spot if you're there for, you know, abstract broad brush pictures of what, what government shouldn't be and that you can stop it from being if you take up space there.
1: So to go backwards a little bit into, because yeah. now we're talking a little bit about you and media, you get into media a little bit by the back door. You start doing radio reads, right, locally. And mm-hmm. when is kind of the moment you realize, like, oh, I'm actually going to be a, like a media person, like I'm actually going <laughs> to make this my thing and I'm going to talk to people for a living and, and try to inform them about the world in which they live?
0: It was a very specific thing. It was weird. And did
1: people around you know it before you did?
0: Oh, that's interesting. No, I don't think anybody thought coming. I was finishing my dissertation, living in Western Mass. And then once I finished my dissertation, I was—I ultimately ended up working for the National Minority AIDS Council and the ACLU National Prison Project. And so I'm continuing with my activist stuff. And I'm working odd jobs on top of that just to make money and pay the rent. And I had a lot of really odd jobs. Like I worked at a coffee bean roasting factory and I did deliveries. Jungle themed. Uh, <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a better one. It was a better one. And I was... Hired to do landscaping, like dig out tree stumps and stuff, by this person who was a friend of a friend, and it was she opened the door the first day. I was going to hire me. And it was love at first sight, and that ended up being my partner Susan, and we've been together for seventeen years now.
1: Genuine, like love at first sight. Literally, like comets
0: and bluebirds. It <laughs> was crazy. Um, but so odd jobs, some of which worked out great, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the odd jobs, these friends who I was living with, they were fans of this local morning show, like a morning zoo commercial drive morning show, and the sidekick on that show was leaving, and they held open on-air auditions to replace the sidekick. And I did the on-air audition, and I got the job, and they hired me, and I started the next day. It was really funny, and it, but it was just another odd job. And I did that for one year, and I stopped doing that in 2001 after having worked that job for exactly 365 days so that I could go to Oxford and actually do my Viva and get my degree. And I thought that would be it. I was I had a radio job for 1 year <laughs> but then right after right after I got my degree right after I came back from Oxford 9/11 happened and I found myself having a very strong desire to be back on the radio because I was the news person on this mm-hmm. Morning Drive radio show, and it meant reading AP copy of news stories and stuff, but then also explaining things going on locally and doing right. little interviews and doing just explanatory stuff that I liked and I thought I was good at. I found myself wanting to do that after 9-11. All the local radio stations like everywhere across the country stopped playing music, went to full talk all the time, blood drives before people knew that there weren't, wasn't much of a need for that and the whole thing. And so I called the station that was physically closest to me, which was also the music station that I listened to most often, which had stopped playing music. And I said, hey, it's Rachel, who used to be the sidekick on the Dave in the Morning show from WRNX. And they said, oh, yeah, whatever happened to you? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm back in the area, and I'm not working in radio anymore. But if you want somebody to pick up weekend shifts just doing call-ins and talk, I, I would do it for free. Huh. And they said, great, come down and do it. And that turned into, ultimately, pretty quickly it turned over to me having a job doing their morning show that's a job I mean it was minimum wage but it was still like a job where I had to be there a lot of hours every day I drive down so you're at this point morning. Dr. Maddow at this point, I'm and Dr. Mato. And
1: you're doing free radio weekends. Yes. And now a minimum wage. Is that a weird feeling or is that that, that feels more... No, because yeah. mostly
0: what I was was an AIDS activist. Yeah. And so this was... This you're other still thing.
1: doing AIDS activism. Yeah. Got and it. so I'm okay. still
0: working. So I'm getting up at three something in the morning, driving in the dark down to the station, doing the morning show. I'm done by noon. And then I come home and I'm working for AIDS okay. organizations and stuff in the afternoon. And really enjoying it and starting to get more and more freedom and starting to get like, I don't know, more and more into it. And it's seeming like less of a... Seeming like less of a lark and sort of seeming like something I was putting more of my brain into. And then there became this news that Air America was going to start. This was 2003, 2004, that they were going to start a liberal talk radio network to compete with the Rush Limbaugh's of the world. And I'm doing liberal talk radio for DJing and morning show (laughs) in rural, unrated Western New England. And...
1: So it's a hell of a pitch. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> I'm not, you know, and they're, they've got Al Franken and Janine right. Garofalo and all these very famous people. You know, Bobby Kennedy. And-
1: it's actually amazing looking back on that, the kind of lineup they had when they launched. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 I remember, like, the excitement in liberal circles about Air America. And, oh, yeah. And the people who were signing up to do shows. And, it was and the a big cover
0: deal. of the New York Times Magazine yep, and, like, like, the hype. Like, this was going to change the American landscape. And, and this was, you know, people very upset about the Iraq War. Yeah. This is going to change George W. Bush's reelection prospects. And, um, I mean, it was this huge deal. And it seemed much bigger than me. But I had this friend... He's an expat from New York City. He'd been a bartender in New York and had decided to—it was too hurly-burly, and he had stuff going on with his own health and everything. And I knew him sort of through AIDS activist stuff, and we both ended up in Western Mass. And turns out one of his best friends from his bartending days was one of his best customers, who was the co-founder of The Daily Show, Liz Winstead. Oh, really? Liz Winstead, who is one of the creators of this network, who is in charge of hiring talent. (laughs)
4: <laughs> and so he
0: said, so I, I know this girl, do you want to? And I was like, yeah, I guess I do. I guess I want to try. And I thought my life might diverge. If I get this job, I'll try for a little while being a full-time media person and just give up the activist thing. Mm-hmm. If I don't get this job, I will keep doing what I'm doing here for a long time. I'm happy with my life. And I ended up sort of kicking and streaming and getting, screaming and getting that job. And I remember telling everybody in the sort of AIDS in prison stuff that I was doing more or less, half-time, full-time at that point. Like, I got I got this job in New York. It's a little weird. It's nothing related to AIDS. And I'm going to try to do this for six months. And so I'm going to stop out of all of our work. I gave all of my responsibilities to other people, huh. gave all of the stuff I was working on to other people. I said, I'll be back in six months if this doesn't work out. I think it's probably not going to work out, but I'm going to go. T- I got to really make a go of it. The, the first show
1: you're on, there are a couple people on it. I'm who Liz Winstead. Liz Winstead. From The Daily Show, and Chuck D. from Public Enemy. It was Chuck D. from Public Enemy, yeah. yeah. My man. What was that like?
0: It was crazy. Like, that
1: must be a very, like, all of a sudden being on a radio show with Chuck D. Yeah. Must be a real
0: trip. Well, it didn't. It didn't. So what happened was it was supposed to be Chuck D. from Public Enemy, Liz Winstead, co-creator of The Daily Show, and this other person. And something happened with that other person where... They just decided she wasn't going to work out. They had built the show around the three of them, and I was supposed to be the sidekick news girl. And so I was supposed to be the person who came in at the top of the hour who did cut-ins, like I used to do on my morning zoo right. show, just telling them like what's going on in the news. And I like was lobbying to like please can I have an opportunity to chat a little bit with the <laughs> hosts after we do the news? I could be I I could be funny. I could do that. And they were like, we'll just keep you to the news. But we're having these all-staff meetings planning what that show is going to be like, and it's starting to become apparent that one of these hosts is not going to fit in. And we've all been discussing what the rundowns are going to be like and how the production day is going to be like and what we want to focus on and how many interviews we want to do and all this stuff. We've all been in on these discussions. On the day they decide that the third host is not going to work, Liz literally looks around the room and goes, well, why don't you do it? (laughs) Thank God I wasn't in the bathroom. And so I was... The, I was the random entry. But I was also the only one who'd ever done radio before.
1: Well, that's fascinating. So you were actually, you were also the most experienced.
0: I ended up being like the serious technocratic one that kept everything on track, which is hilarious. How different is doing radio
1: and doing cable?
0: Very. When you're doing radio, you're just talking right into somebody's ear. And so you have to be a real person. Mm-hmm. And on TV, you have to be looked at.
1: And so you have to be a thing. And you need assets. It's what I learned when I was guest hosting. You always needed assets: the the sound, the 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 pictures. Producers oh, elements, it. Elements, yeah. elements, elements, not Assets. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah. No, I'm terrible with assets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need elements. I I still I don't think visually at all. So all yeah, I don't know visual either. elements. I mean, I know I can think about timing in terms of when stuff should pop and when it shouldn't, and like when things should be revealed on the show. But um, yeah, I just think in terms of script.
1: So you started going on 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 Joe Scarborough's show, actually. as I remember right.
0: Uh, no, Tucker
1: Carlson. It's Tucker Carlson. show. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, 2005. It's the George W. Bush reelection effort. Yeah. And so every cable news Punch and Judy show in the world is looking for liberals to fight with conservatives. Right. And so I was like getting paired up with G. Gordon Liddy and, like, <laughs> you know, and, like, and Pap Buchanan. And Pap Buchanan actually really helped me. He said, after I got booked opposite him on somebody's show, he said to the producers, hey, I like that liberal girl. Like have, uh, her, have her come on with me more. He really huh. helped. He, he was very sweet to me. And he liked arguing with me.
1: His politics, a lot of people find very objectionable. But I've heard so many stories like that about Pat Buchanan.
0: He's just uh, he's 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 not effusive. He's not one yeah. of these guys who like networks and tries to be super schmoozy and nice with people. He's just actually super decent.
1: Yeah, and he tries to help people up. He help, tries it's to help people up thing.
0: without trying to take any credit for it, mm-hmm. in a way that is is very very personally decent. Even though his politics are not just. Scary! They're getting so much worse. <laughs>
1: well, it's so fascinating because he is someone I would like to hear so much more from this year because he is really a forerunner of Trump. You should
0: interview him in this forum.
1: Yeah. I'm gonna, He's someone be I've been wanting to, to reach yeah, out to to try a, to interview. He's a, yeah. He's
0: super smart and he knows what he's talking about and what he thinks is very scary, but he's, he can explain it. In but a I mean way the kind of
1: culturally helpful. nationalist, traditionalist, economically populist thing that Trump is doing mm-hmm. was done in a more serious way. Maybe not a more successful one, but a more serious one by him.
0: Mm-hmm. Certainly more like um, academically and ideologically grounded. Um, He can explain why he feels that way. Yeah. But really, not afraid to talk about the race part of it, and that's yeah. obviously the thing that looms over a lot of people's fear of Pat Buchanan's politics. He's not like you know using racial slurs and things like that, but he's he's willing to explain where he's coming from in terms of racial right. nationalism, and it's helpful for understanding it. For because a lot of other people are much more coded about it. He's right. not. He's not afraid of being seen as you know politically incorrect.
1: Yes. So no. he'll say it. That he is not.
0: <laughs> no, exactly. So I did that for a while, and then um, I got hired by the Tucker Carlson show to be one of his like roving panel of guests, which was hilarious. And then they decided to get rid of the roving panel. And then by that point, I was working overnights. So mm-hmm. it was a little weird. I was sleeping during the day and staying up all night. That was a strange time. Um, overnights on the radio. Well, after the Chuck Todd, uh, Chuck, Todd <laughs> Chuck D, <laughs> Liz <the> Winston. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
4: <laughs>
0: after that show died, the next thing that happened to me is that I got a solo show that was 5 a.m. to 6 a.m., which was the one hour in the Air America schedule that wasn't spoken for. And I right. was like, I'll do it. And in order to do that show, I used to go in at midnight.
4: Okay.
0: Because I am the only radio host in the history of radio hosts who used to write my show. I would write out every word that oh, I wow. saw in the show. Yeah. That no, is a lot of no words. No guests, no And Collins. you talk really quick. Yeah. <laughs> so I burned through a lot of good producers. <laughs> You'd be like, all right, so we get to work at midnight, and then we're off the air by 6 a.m., and you want to go out for a glass of wine? Like, ah! No, I want to have a human life. But I used to go to the Tucker Carlson show. He was on at eleven at that time, so they'd like get picked up at ten p.m. Go to the Tucker Carlson show, have breakfast, or go to the gym. I used to go to the Taxi Driver gym on Fourteenth Street. That was amazing. It was guys in full like corduroys and sandals doing bench presses. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah, it smelled really crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but it was open twenty four hours a day, and it was um, only twenty five dollars a month. It was excellent. There you go. And then I ended up getting uh, ultimately in two thousand eight getting my own gig.
1: Weird. So you've been at, at Air America and at MSNBC, and so you've kind of, I think, had a real front row seat on the rise of there being a more liberal counterpart to sort of conservative conservative outlets. How do you think about the kind of like fracturing effect for individual viewers, right? Like in some kind of full ecosystem way, mm. it's obviously good that there are a lot of different perspectives represented, but do you worry about sort of and then with the internet obviously the kind of echo chamber effect among individuals of fear that people are just going to continuously hear the thing they want to hear? People can certainly
0: self-select, yeah. you know, what they want to hear, but that's not I don't think that's our fault. I just think that's where we're at. Whether or not there was any cable news at all, people would still be in that environment, particularly because of online news sources. So that exists, that dynamic just in people's psyche and their comfort levels is around. In in terms of the way that we make decisions about that on a day-to-day basis, me and my staff and what to put on the show, the way it functions is basically not that different than in a world where that dynamic wasn't around. And what I mean by that is whether or not people are doing that, I need to do the same thing, which is be trustworthy. Mm -hmm. Be trustworthy, be worth listening to, be engaging, and be fact-checkable and fair. Mm -hmm. And that's true whether or not you're a liberal and you want to listen to me because you're a liberal, or whether you're a conservative and you're coming to me because you hate me, or whether you have an ecumenical taste in politics and you want to hear from all different kinds of people. The imperative is the same for me in terms of what I need to do.
1: And how do you sort of structure your information flow to make sure that that, that you feel you're doing that, right? Yeah. Because you're also a news consumer. Yeah. Right? And it's easy to cocoon and easy to, you know, get frustrated at, at sources. And something I think your show does incredibly well, and I've, you know, you've given me the, the opportunity to host it a couple of times. I've always been amazed at your staff reads a broader diversity, and I don't just mean ideological, but at different levels of the media, right? Mm-hmm. You guys are much more focused on state and local politics and, than others are. So how do you organize like your information diet? That
0: is a very active dynamic in my life that I mm-hmm. think about all the time and that I'm constantly managing. The most satisfying thing about my job is the power to choose what counts as news today. Mm-hmm. And so in order to do that, we need to understand on a daily basis what is the universe of news that we might consider today. What are other people talking about? What can we add useful information about? And what's going to be the most fun? And that dynamic is great, but that means that the wide part of the funnel has to be constantly recalibrated so that mm-hmm. you're considering the right universe. So basically, the, the one thing that I do that I think is a little different than what your average news consumer might do is that I try really, really, really hard to avoid all opinion. Huh. I don't read columns. Oh that's interesting. Yeah, I don't I only try to read editorial. I don't try, I try not to read op-eds unless they've, you know, sometimes you get an op-ed that's really actually introducing a ton new of new right. information. I try not to read editorials unless they themselves are news that mm-hmm. they're going to have an impact on something or that they, you know, might conceivably alter the trajectory of a news organization just because I don't want to absorb other people's opinions and I don't want to become part of a tide of common wisdom on something. I'd rather be my own. Thing. So will
1: you actively, I mean people will be talking about a Paul Krugman or a Charles Krauthammer piece and you'll actively try to not read it. Yeah.
0: In a case like that if everybody's talking about a Charles Krauthammer column, I, you know, will say, "All right, who's read it?" Is there anything newsworthy in it, or is the news just the headline that Great yeah. has taken a position against X or for right. X? And then you know, it's not like I I think it's radioactive, yeah, yeah. but I try not to use other people's opinions as my source of news. And the, the other thing that I do that I think is a little bit unusual is that we do try to geographically change up the sources of information. So obviously everybody has to read the AP and the New York Times and the Washington Post. And we all have to read those things. But I also try to, on kind of a rotating basis, you know, read the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and mm-hmm. read the Texas Tribune and read the Guardian and read the Portland Press-Herald and read the... you know, Particularly if I know something interesting is going on in that state, I try to read a lot of different news sources in yeah. that state. That's also fun because yeah. that's where you get the little giblets of stuff that people don't necessarily know about who are just participating in the national conversation. And you can introduce something, not that's just like a water cooler story, but that's like an interesting thing going on somewhere else.
1: Is the way you do that, that you have, I don't know, bookmarks folder with all these different ones there and you sort of today you'll do the, the Portland paper? Or are there kind of sorting mechanisms... Sort of state news aggregators. I mean, are there are there things that help you? My staff make uses those the, this
0: kind of mechanisms. Uh-huh. Uses RSS feeds that are set up for specific okay. things, and we do a staff note every day, which you'll remember from doing yeah. the um, from doing the show. That that is very helpful, and that basically the staff note, which is an extensive thing, is kind of required reading. Yeah. Everybody needs to know not just the headline but the basics of every single story that's in that note and it's dozens of stories you know it takes me an hour to go through that and read everything in that and then beyond that is when you're reading to get smarter and so for me I've got all of my must read like I need, I need to know what's in the Wall Street Journal the Washington Post the New York Times the Washington post CNN National Review like I need I need there's certain things that I need to know what's mm-hmm. in them every day and those are necessities and then beyond that I actually don't Make bookmarks for regional stuff because they're <laughs> all in my head. <laughs> so if I know that I'm interested in something going on with Brownback, like I actually know what all of the Kansas
1: news sources are that I want to go to, which is embarrassing that I do. <laughs> I, I don't think that's so embarrassing. I, I find yeah. it really hard. Like I really want to do as a as a journalist a better job keeping up on state and local news, mm-hmm. and the thing that I have found it really hard to do is get any kind of thirty thousand foot view such mm-hmm. that it's easier to figure out where to drill. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I mean, it's a crowded news environment. You can read a million things. like You can spend all your time forever. And, like, now I have a lot of meetings in my life. And yeah. I manage people and that yeah. harder. So I don't have as much time. And I always figure there must be obsessives or newsletters for state lobbyists or something that are out there yeah. that are helping. But I've never found one that I really liked. What I have learned, at least thus far, is that there's no systematic way to do yeah. it. There's no way to
0: process information from 50 states. Yeah. On a granular enough level that you're gonna find what interests you yeah. and do it in a regular way. It has by necessity, it has to be a little bit hit or miss. Mm-hmm. Unless you are going to assign people who work for you to have regional awareness in specific, you know, you're it, you're you have ten people and they're each responsible for five states. That's also an incredible waste of resources right. because the stuff is gonna stuff is gonna bubble a little yeah. bit. I mean, to a certain extent, you need to trust you know aggregators who you like, and yeah. you need to like skip around some aggregators. There are some Pseudo technocratic newsletter type things that yeah. I use. National conferences, state legislatures actually does some interesting oh, things. Yeah. Government executive? Do you ever read government yeah. executive? Government, I like executive, government has executive has some yeah. has some stuff in it that will lead you into interesting um, down interesting paths. So you end up you know you end up finding those people. Like I've got some bloggers who I love on water policy. You know, there's some people who are the obviously the voting rights world is very well organized yep. online in terms of like trusting people who blog on voting rights who I trust to let me know if there's some fascinating thing going yeah. on with a voting rights fight in North Dakota or wherever it is. Yeah,
1: I feel that, we, that way about healthcare. You can cut this by issue a lot better. Yeah. Then you have people who that's a way of organizing it and they do it. So I'll yeah. ask maybe a couple more idiosyncratic que- or more, you know, disconnected questions okay. and, and then I'll let you go. Okay. So one, what is something you believe that that most people think is wrong?
0: that most people wrongly believe about whether or not I believe it, or most people disagree sorry, with it? I'm sorry,
1: most people disagree with it. It's, oh. a, it's, an, it's a position you hold that you think is true.
0: Oh, how many do you want? <laughs> Let's do you it. Know right. I am very against term limits.
1: I completely agree with that. You do? Yes. Why,
0: do you, why are you against it? Because
1: me? it makes the permanent lobbying and staff class of the government, right? Like It, mm-hmm. it, it transfers exactly. power from the... From elected officials to unelected officials. Yes. Because they have expertise.
0: And the only people who know how to write legislation and get stuff passed and how to sneak things through mm-hmm. are people who you are never allowed to know their name. They can't be fired. And if you want to protest them, you can't find
1: their office. My version of this argument is in California, there eventually came a time when the most experienced budget negotiator in the room, who was, you know, one of the one of the principals, was Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and that should not happen in life. That's just like right. you should not be in a case where Arnold Schwarzenegger is negotiating with the Speaker of the House yeah. and the President of the Senate. And he's a guy who has done this the most times. Yes. Like that is not a reasonable way to
4: run. And a, the amazing to run thing. in government. In,
0: again, in California, w- once term, term limits started happening in California, you'd end up with people not just in those meetings who yeah. didn't know what they were doing about. But you'd end up with like the leader of the assembly being somebody who had never figured anything out on the way there. They were chosen to be the leader of the assembly because they wanted to set that person up for a good state senate job, which was coming. Being the leader was just, it was like being a guest star.
1: Yes, and then to bash (laughs) her moments for one more second, the other problem is on the, back end. So right now, we worry about the revolving door problem in Congress. We worry about the fact that members of Congress, when they leave, they often become lobbyists. But at least before that happens, their idea is that they're going to get reelected. Their idea is that their next job is going to be this job. If they know for sure they need to find another job in a year, well, then all of a sudden, like, you do start looking around and wondering, like, who's hiring maybe in the lobbying class?
0: Well, yeah, the, the day after you get to Congress, your incentives have nothing to do with doing right by your constituency if you know you're
1: going to be gone by the end of that term.
0: Literally, the day you arrive, you have a mission accomplished for Congress by getting there. And then the next mission you need to accomplish has something to do with your next paycheck.
1: So I think this position is so clearly correct.
0: I'm (laughs) I'm not allowing it. (laughs) Well, you and I have just
1: abolished term limits in this room. Yeah, I I do believe that's how activism works. Yes, exactly.
0: (laughs) We win. That's a good one. Uh, I think that Bill Clinton should have resigned the presidency because of his sexual impropriety with an intern.
1: I think that's a really good one.
0: Yeah. I think that's not a popular view, but I think that it was because it was somebody who was in his employ, yep. it was wrong enough that it was an affront to the presidency. It's
1: so interesting you say, you bring that up. So I was reading on the train up here last night, E.J. Dion, who's great columnist from the Washington person. Post, amazing Wonderful person, person. Um, just read a book called Why the Right Went Wrong.
0: I just read it too. It's and great. Yeah.
1: Phenomenal book. But he has a really interesting discussion of this question of, of the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. And something he says that I had never really understood before, is it. He makes the argument in there that Clinton lying on national television about this, right, going out and saying, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, which is just one of the really horrible moments in American politics, really immoral. He thinks that as terrible as that was morally, it was actually the right strategy because what Clinton did was he bought time. If he had just admitted it, the primary thing that people would have felt is this guy's a terrible guy, and he needs to resign, and Al Gore will be a perfectly fine president. Mm -hmm. But because he was able to slow the process down so much of Revelation, he created time where the right organized against him so vociferously and overplayed their hand so badly. He became their victim. He became their victim. Yes. Uh, and, and it was a really I had never thought about it that way. It was a totally persuasive argument yeah. E.J. made. But, and disgusting. But I, totally and disgusting. disgusting. <laughs> when you go back and really think about what, what Bill Clinton did there, it, it's yeah. really morally shocking. And, you
0: know, what's the right thing for the country in that case? I mean, like I think Al Gore probably would have been a fine president. I think that Bill Clinton was to the extent that he carried out his responsibilities as president. He sort of did fine. But the the damage done to expectations, yeah. both of behavior and accountability, I think specifically because of the sexual misconduct is, it's hard to quantify, but I feel that way.
1: Speaking of books, what are a book or a couple of books you've read that actually changed the way you thought?
0: You know, one of the things about this job, this job and my last job, the Air America job too, is that I end up... Having to read a lot of new books fast, huh. so it leads to interview
1: people and to interview
0: people and to know whatever's going on uh-huh. right now. If a book is changing the way that yeah. something's going on in the news, and so it means that I don't have a lot of time to read books that are out, outside of the stream.
1: Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I don't have time. Sense. I don't have time
0: to read old books. I I only read new yeah, books now. When you're
1: housing Piketty, you don't just don't yeah. have the time. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I read differently than I used to because of that. But even you know that doesn't mean that new books are bad. It does mean it does mean that my flow through in terms of new books in my life is not what I would want it to be. But one thing I look for in books is to get an appreciation of organizational momentum. That's really boring way of saying that. What I mean is, I try to figure out why things happen. I am entertained by conspiracy theories just as terms of like escapist entertainment and bar bar-based banter. Uh-huh. But I really do not believe in them as a as a human being and a study or at a person who stu- studies politics. And so I always want to learn why things really happen. And so Steve Call's book Private Empire about uh-huh. Exxon changed my thinking about big corporations and particularly their relationship to politics. Huh. The way that Exxon looks at not just who's the president and who's in Congress, but the way Exxon looks at literally the global map and the divisions between where countries are and says, we will outlast this map. Huh. Governments will come and go. Countries will come and go. But we, Exxon, will have needs and desires and things that we want to do, which transcend the coming and going of countries and governments. And we need to think in that sort of a time frame.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: That blew my mind and has helped me understand more about how we think about big business. Gordon Goldstein's Lessons in Disaster, which is about the escalation of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Brilliant book about the rationality of that terrible decision, how the incremental, each incrementally more terrible decision made sense as you were going step by step, and how it wasn't a it wasn't a conspiracy and it wasn't a cabal and it wasn't bad people trying to get bad things done. It was reasonable people with understandable emotions, faults, and assets making decisions that made sense in the moment that led to something terrible without there being any sort of organizational break. Also super helpful for me. You know, I actually, this is people are going to say, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd expect that from Adam." But shock doctrine changed my thinking in terms of, again, like people who By have Naomi a diff- Naomi... Naomi Klein. Yeah. yeah. If you have a bigger perspective on something going on if you are not caught up in a crisis and you instead are one of the people who is standing back and figuring out how this crisis is going to ultimately benefit you mm-hmm. that is a perspective that is worth anticipating seeing crises not just for who creates them but for who can benefit from them is helpful like I, I like I like reading things that make me either look more closely than I have been or
1: look broader than I have been I like things that make me change my time and space perspective I was asking somebody about books to read recently and he said the biggest problem is I've not read any really good books that were wrong lately Hmm. and he was making the argument that people read too many books that are right yeah and that they just kind of think are are are, are safe and smart and you know will we'll help them you know just see something you know clearly and not enough books that have big conceptual leaps that at the cost of you know part of that book maybe not being exactly right. right, but does help you think about things in in another way. People read too many things that mirror their own not ideological way of looking at the world but procedural way of looking at the world yeah.
0: Well that's why I like reading like reading about business. Yeah. I find very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not into like I'm not into like biographies of famous inventors like I don't, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care about like I don't care about like the science of genius and right. people who are amazing. Like I care about how big or successful organizations that I'm inclined to think of as evil <laughs> are actually internally organized in a way that makes like I want to know how they see me. Right. I want to know how they see politics as opposed to seeing them as this sort of unitary black box. But I think if we need to focus more on things that are wrong, I think you and I should resolve today, here, uh, to reread Microtrends. (laughs) (laughs) I
3: think we should do it. Uh,
1: I I think that's right. right. And I I think it's time that we admitted the American people are going to be taken over by lefties. Are you (laughs) left-handed?
0: No, but I, I'm thinking about trying to make myself left-handed so I'll be more smart.
1: Yeah, so you can you can be part of the coming revolution. <laughs> Rachel Maddow, thank you so much. This is much.
0: great, Ezra. Congratulations really on everything that has, has happened in your life over the last few years. You have changed not only your life, but you have changed a lot of people's lives and what we all think of as possible in this world that we're in, this media world that we're in. So keep going, man.
1: That is much too kind, but
3: thank you. That was the very first episode of The Ezra Klein Show. Thanks to Ezra's producer and engineer, Jeff Geld. And thanks to all of you Ezra Klein Show listeners for three years of listening. The show must go on, and it will on Thursday. I'm Sean Ramos from Good Night.